We must always hold both the kingdom and the church in tension. God hasn't finished with the church. What he's finished with is the way we have done church for the last 2,000 years. Kingdom and church like love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. And as I said before, without the first you can forget the second. We are in a new era. Maybe the era of the king himself. The kingdom is a person. The king himself. We're seeking a person, not an experience. If we can discover Jesus, we become part of his purpose and his intention towards us. By doing this, we'll come into our inheritance. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God consists of, excuse me, and is based on, not talk, but power, moral power and excellence of soul. Corporately seeking his reign and rule in our lives, of one mind and purpose, we become the church he intends and his glorious bride. The church is a visible expression of the kingdom on earth. It isn't the kingdom, it's the visible expression of the kingdom. Jesus came to put a face on God and we are here to put a face on Jesus. When we see the kingdom it stabilizes us. It gives us an overview that surpasses the failures and faults of the local expressions of church. Many problems within the church context lose their strength when we perceive king, the kingdom of God at work in our midst. The kingdom, being different from the church, provides a base for unity without compromise. We can fellowship with all kinds of people simply on the basis of the transcendent nature of the kingdom. If you believe in seven raptures, bless you. I think you're wrong, but I no, need, no longer need to put you right. I know what I believe and it doesn't stop me fellowshipping with you. If you hear me, fine. If you don't, fine. Love covers. How other people choose to run a church becomes unimportant. We are released from criticism and from trying to correct and change everyone and everything and have it our own way because we recognise that the government is on his shoulders, not ours. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Hallelujah. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. This change comes about because we move from what is self-referential in us, that's what we want, what we like, what we're comfortable with, to what is self-giving. Or we move from eros, or natural love, to agape. And before we leave the issue of the church and kingdom, I want to draw your attention to something that Bob Mumford says. That is that the kingdom can be given and taken. In other words, we can lose it. There is a salutary warning in one of his little booklets entitled The Difference Between the Kingdom and the Church. And again, you can see these on lifechangers.org. Uh, they're called plumb lines and they cost about £1.50. Uh, they're absolutely priceless. Now he says this. His observation is that church history could be more accurately described as kingdom history. Because the kingdom is not in word but in power and the kingdom of God is given and taken. I tell you, for this reason, 
the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce the fruits of it. That's Matthew 21:43. It affects the manner in which denominational history could be perceived. And he talks of the Presbyterians, that's John Knox in the 16th century, John Wesley in the 18th century, the Pentecostal movement in the 20th century, the Charismatic movement in the 20th century, and how they were all given the kingdom. But as they ceased to bring forth fruit, it was given to someone else in a different form. And he goes on to say, risking the anger and misunderstanding of churchmen, I would observe that when a group or denomination fail or refuse to bring forth the fruit of the kingdom, that power is taken and given to another. History of revivals can be seen in this light. The kingdom is taken and given, taken and given. It's given to anyone producing fruit. God could give it to us. All we have to do is to produce the fruit given in the five descriptions of priestly behaviour. And we will look at those. And that's ouch factor 20. When we look at those five descriptions, we'll see why we've so dismally failed to continue to bear fruit and why God has taken away the kingdom and given it to someone else. And why it's so important that we don't try to do a paint and wallpaper job on something that is 50 years old and try to sell it to the public. My picture of my, my dream of my car, you know, the car being done up. So we will examine these things uh, when we examine the descriptions and look at the agape love of God and the leadership and authority in the church. So I'll stop there for a the minute. Now. The thumbs up. Okay. We've got some most gorgeous music coming through on the in the background here. So. Have they got the door open there, dear? They need to close it. This, could you close it because it's disturbing? So what we're looking at now, this afternoon, is leadership and authority in the church. And the divine order of authority is God, the scriptures, personal responsibility before God, that's a good conscience, that's why I've stuck with references to conscience on there, and no blame shifting. And God's delegated authority recognised through the local church leadership. I've got a question to ask you. To start with, by whom and to what and where are you being led? Leaders lead, where are yours leading you? A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Root of the Righteous, that we're all too ready to follow the parade without knowing where it's headed. Do you know this day where you're headed under your current leadership? What are they leading you into? Are they leading you anywhere or are you all going round in circles? And some years ago when I was in ministry, um, 
God gave me a picture of, an, uh, of a river and an inlet. And in this inlet was myself and about half a dozen other people. And we were all swimming round and round like this. I'm swimming and they're all following me round. And the Lord said to me, you've gone round in circles long enough, go straight. So I came out into the fullness of the river and bless them, they went on going round in there. So are you confident of where your leaders are leading you is the way that God is going? We need to be moving in the same direction as he is or we just will not reach our destination. If a boat is just a degree off course, it will not reach its desired haven. Where am I leading you today? Into the arms of your bridegroom or to me? If it's the latter, please leave now for both our sakes. That the nature of the change that is upon us, I don't want to spend too much time in this part of the teaching, which is about leadership and authority, because anything I say could be held against me. Uh, the scriptures are clear about what qualities are required for those who aspire to leadership and I've put the references in the sheet that you've got there. Uh, I mean, 1 and 2 Timothy are totally what Paul says, this is what is required of people who want to, if you desire leadership, you desire a good thing. But I want to talk about emerging leadership in the church because God always looks forward, he doesn't look back. And when I prayed about this section, I heard the Lord say it was to be headed up emerge, emerging leadership. Since there is currently emerging in the Church of Christ a different kind of leader. These men and women are totally in love with the Lord, totally focused on Jesus, and will build and encourage the flock under his guidance. They will be sacrificial towards both God and man and their goal will be to release people into their destinies. Now the qualities of an under-shepherd, because that's what we all are if we're in leadership, we're under-shepherds. As a sheep you should be looking for these qualities in your shepherd. A good shepherd knows his sheep as individuals, not just as a flock. A good shepherd will go out after the one or ones who are in danger of getting lost or who are losing their way. A good shepherd is able to correct without being perceived as rejecting and it goes without saying that the flock need to have a teachable heart. It's reciprocal. People need to be loved by their leaders in such a way that they surrender to the love of God which comes through the leadership. Otherwise, they will say, if you try to make me, I'll fight you. But if you love me, I'll hear you. If you love me, you can correct me. Correction must always be with the best interests of the corrected at heart, not for the convenience of the leader or leaders. Leaders must be aware that they are growing children, from nepios, that's a child without speech, to huios, which is fully mature sons. And we'll look at this concept uh, more closely when we look at spiritual warfare in May. Leaders should demonstrate the nature of God. Though imperfect people ourselves, we're given the charge of developing other imperfect people and are charged with loving them, while at the same time developing and growing ourselves. It's an awesome task to be given care of the Good Shepherd's sheep. 
we are directly responsible to him for the way in which we treat them. That should put a healthy fear of God in us. It certainly does in me. Good leaders grow. They do not stagnate or go round in circles. They're always pushing further into God in order to lead the flock on in him. When God is judging something, he sends it in circles. An example of this is the children of Israel in the wilderness. Round and round. They just went round and round because God was judging them. Good leaders should be transparent, open, honest, able to receive criticism without defending themselves or retaliating or incidentally making excuses. Their primary task is to teach people how to hear God for themselves and to grow up in God. The goal is maturity, maturity, maturity. Leaders are trainers, equippers and releasers. Their prime task and responsibility is to equip every believer for works of service and to be a model of Christ-like behaviour. It's not an easy mandate. There are no superstars and no ministry elite in the body of Christ. Leaders are servants. Paul said this of apostles in 1 Corinthians 4, 9 and 10. Goes quite against the coalition of apostles. <clears throat> For it seems to me that God has made an exhibit of us apostles, exposing us to view last like men in triumphal procession who are sentenced to death and displayed at the end of the line. For we have become a spectacle to the world, a show in the world's amphitheatre, with both men and angels as spectators. We are looked upon as fools on account of Christ and for his sake. But you are supposedly so amazingly wise and prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are so very strong. You are highly esteemed, but we are in disrepute and contempt. Leaders lead you into the presence and purposes of God. Leaders are meant to be so in love with God and to display such humility and servanthood but that by their fathering spirit and example they provide a model in self-government. They teach people about maturity and self-control, a fruit of the spirit, and how to live before the Lord in spirit and in truth with a clear conscience and short accounts. True leaders would always teach people how to live in and before God. This is what I term personal responsibility. I will not be responsible for your life when I stand before the beamer seat of Christ and get my rewards on that day. I'm only responsible for doing what the Father tells me to do and it should be the same for you. When personal responsibility is high on the agenda, blame shifting ceases because we just have to take responsibility for our own reactions and responses. We cannot point to the other fellow, whom incidentally God has probably put there as your grace grower to show you what area he wants to kiss next in your life. Paul spoke a lot about personal responsibility and keeping his conscience clear before God and man. In Acts 24:16, he said, Therefore I always exercise and discipline myself, mortifying my body, deadening my carnal affections, bodily appetites and worldly desires, endeavouring in all respects to have a clear, unshaken, blameless conscience, 
void of offence towards God and towards man. And in 2 Corinthians 4.2 he says, We have renounced the disgraceful ways, secret thoughts, feelings, desires and underhandedness, the methods and arts that men hide through shame. We refuse to deal craftily, to practice trickery and cunning, or to adulterate or handle dishonestly the word of God. But we state the truth openly, clearly and candidly, and so we commend ourselves in the sight and presence of God to every man's conscience. Notice the two, vertical, horizontal. We commend ourselves in the sight and presence of God to every man's conscience. So the references to conscience on your sheet are for you to look up at your leisure, mill your homework. We have a lot to learn about the ways of God with us. I don't think they are as, as we think they are sometimes. Everything he does is to accomplish one thing, to conform us to the image of his son and to prepare the bride. If you look at the circumstances in your life right now through those lenses, things may become a little clearer. You're being transformed into his likeness. Romans 8.29 said, For those whom he foreknew, of whom he was aware and loved beforehand, he also destined from the beginning, foreordaining them, to be moulded into the image of his Son, and share inwardly his likeness, that he might become the firstborn among many brethren. Beloved, it's your destiny to be like him in your inward parts, in your very nature. Every believer should know who Jesus is for them personally and be able to teach new converts the basic doctrines. Each believer should be taught to discover and depend on God, not on the leadership. This is the task of true leadership, to develop people to their utmost potential in God. I've heard it said recently that you should never place yourself under the authority of someone who doesn't have a greater vision for your life than you have for yourself. In other words, they want to see you excel and reach your full potential in God. Leaders are developers and enablers. Good leaders learn to deal with failure and failures and turn them into positive learning experiences for people. We will all make mistakes, we will all fail. But it's what your leadership does with those mistakes and your failings when they turn up. There are people that I love dearly right now that are away from the Lord, following the things they want to follow. It doesn't make my love any different towards them. I'm not condemning them. I'm sad because they're missing out. And if they should walk through the door, I'd probably burst into tears because I just love them. And I want, like, like any mother wants to see the best for her kids. That's about the size of it. So they should be humble kind and full of mercy, yet firm, caring and well disciplined. The leader's role is to balance care for the individual with protection for the flock. We're not employers, we do not hire and fire people. People are worth fighting for and therefore our heart is always to win people. It's my goal to actually see people surpass me in ministry, that's no problem to me though I'd be very upset if I felt they surpassed me in character because character is always more important than gifting it's fruit and baubles Jesus said by your, their fruit you'll know them, not by their gifts 
and many people are very swept away by gifting like this guy that I've said you know the apostolic coalition you can see by looking at him the photograph of him what's going on there bless him he's got an agenda he has an ambition to be something because he doesn't know who he is in Christ so he's trying to take over and be something by leading a ministry and a coalition of apostles I bet they've all got their brooms and buckets outside you know that's the sort of qualification for an apostle you come up behind the horses and sweep up them So good leadership increases everyone's capacity for reaching fullness in Christ. Maturity is the goal of every person. There's no place for immaturity. People should be trained to live a life led by the Holy Spirit where they're not subject to circumstances, not easily deceived. And are not taken in by every wind of doctrine. We should be able to smell false doctrine at ten paces and teach our people to be able to smell it too. This doesn't mean that we don't associate with those who see things differently than we do, quite the reverse. When we're kingdom people, differences disappear, as I said. My salvation and walk's not threatened by the fact that you might believe in seven raptures or that you think we're going through the tribulation. I respect your right to be wrong, as my pastor used to say. The point I'm making here is that we should know what we know, believe what we believe, and live in the good of it. Roger Price has got a set of tapes on this. Because if you've got your foundations in, and you know what you know what you know, you won't be shaken. You'll be like the man whose house was built on the rock. Jesus does that parable at the end of teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I think. If you hear what I say... And sometimes it's been used, hasn't it, to, about unbelievers and they'll all be washed away in the flood, but it's like believers too. One of the problems with the charismatic church and the movement there is that there's no foundations in. If I asked them to give a dissertation on what the blood of Jesus is all about for five minutes, they probably couldn't do it. Um, all they know is they're saved and it's whoopee do time, but there's no actual foundations in. What's the place of Israel in God's purposes? You know, I mean, these things, maybe you think, oh, well, it's just doctrine, doesn't matter. But in these days, it's been prophesied that when the Spirit and the Word come together, the dunamos power, the dynamite power of God will be released. And we're in those days. You've got to have the Word and the Spirit working together, and that's when you see the explosive power of God released. You remember, those of you who were here last time, when we brought the cross over here, and I asked who was living on the wrong side of the cross would they like to get the other side of the cross and I would pray for them and I had my little prayer in one hand and I went the other side of the cross with them and God just said to me just sweep your hand across over them like that so I obediently just did what he said thinking well there you are then that's that made sure to encompass everybody then on the Monday morning I was reading something of uh, one of my my ex-pastor David Hillsley lives around the corner and he says that uh, when Moses lifted up his hand in obedience to God the power of God was released I thought oh 
And it explained to me several things, one of which was, have you ever been in a meeting where they're all doing this? I never understood why they were all doing this. Oh, hold your hand towards the person in front, and I'm thinking, what are you doing that for? Well, that's fine if God says do that, because the power of God is released. But we've got the same old thing. If man says do that, don't drop off the enemy fingers. It's as God says. And as I was speaking, I remember there was someone staying with us some years ago, and I was upstairs, in, standing in the doorway, talking to her in the guest bedroom. She was standing by the single bed, and the Lord said to me, just lift your right hand to your shoulder level. So I went like that while I'm talking to her. She felt flat. I said, what did you do that for? I said, <laughs> <laughs> I just did what I was told. <laughs> the power of God is released. Like someone, you know, was saying, she felt she wanted to thump the table <laughs> during the morning session. Because I said I had a real job not shouting and hooting and hollering during the morning while I was talking. And Sue said, I wanted to thump the table, but I didn't know if it was me or God. <laughs> You never know what you would have brought down, so if you'd have included the table. <laughs> anyway, there we are. Back to the script. So, I respect your right to be wrong, as my pastor used to say. And the point I was making is that we should know what we know, and we must have our foundations in, because it's on those that we build. I heard it said, you know, if you start to tile a floor in a kitchen or anywhere else and you don't start off straight, by the time you get to the other side, it's going to be terrible. <laughs> you'll, you'll have to rip the lot up. And that is what's, what happens if we haven't got our foundations in. That's why I believe God started with these passing the batons last year. The first one in January was an overview of the Bible, what God's intention was, where things fitted in, so that you could see and slot them in to a time frame and see the plan and purpose of God being unfolded. So the two things we absolutely need as Christians, and one is a sound theology, and by that I mean knowledge of the scriptures and an understanding of God's ways with us, the spirit and the word coming together. We are the beloved of God, he absolutely adores us, so we live in that. But we also live in the knowledge of who he is. Love is the key to leadership and authority. That's why we need to change both our lifestyle and our love style. And to be remembered by both leaders of flock, but leaders are sheep too. I'm actually a sheep just like you. As you remember my picture, I, I described it to many of you. I was sitting in Jesus' arms and I got my little sheep's feet over his arm like this and I'm surveying the flock, looking at them. And I looked up at him and all I could see was the profile and the beard and he's steadfastly looking out at the flock. And I said to him in a very pained voice, is there anything at all that I can do to help? <laughs> he didn't respond. He carried on looking at the flock. And then I looked down and I looked at my feet and I looked at their feet on one of them. He <laughs> just sometimes doesn't have to say anything, he just waits for that penny to flop. <sighs> so, qualities of elders and leaders, or leaders and elders, leaders, elders, deacons, our servants. The word ministry is the word service. 
I wonder how many of us would be keen to say, well, I have a ministry in this, if we changed it to have a service in this. <laughs> so my service to you this day is to bring you this word of encouragement and comfort. I'm a gift to you, and you are a gift to me. Enjoy. The definition of a bishop, episkopos, that's the Greek word, E-P-I-S-K-O-P-O-S, is overseer. Presbyteros, that's P-R-E-S-B-U-T-E-R-O-S, is an elder, is another term for the same person as bishop or overseer. The term elder indicates the mature spiritual experience and understanding of those described in Acts 20:28. 20, Take care and be on guard for yourselves and the whole flock over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you, bishops and guardians, to shepherd, tend and feed and guide the church of the Lord, which he obtained for himself, buying it and saving it for himself with his own blood. They oversee the work of God under God himself and are directly responsible to him for the care of the sheep. And the definition of a deacon, that word is diakonos, that's where we get our word deacon from. D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S is the Greek. And it primarily denotes a servant, whether as doing servile work or as an attendant rendering service. And they were ordained by the apostles, you can see that in Acts 6, 1-6. And the qualifications are shown in 1 Timothy. So the Greek word translated deacon signifies servant. And it's translated that way in Matthew 23:11 and John 12:2, uh, and there are many others. So if you want to look it up, you'll find them. Apostolic authority. That's something we hear a lot about these days. Lots of people want to make themselves into apostles. In Jesus 16:19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind, declare to be improper and unlawful on earth, must be what's already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, declare lawful on earth, excuse me, must be what is already loosed in heaven. People have mistakenly used this as a binding and loosing of the demonic, but it isn't. It's in the context of forgiveness that he's actually speaking. And he was handing Peter apostolic authority to rule and make decisions in the church when he, Jesus, had gone back to the Father. With this action, he was equipping Peter, handing him the authority to make decisions in everyday living about things pertaining to those who would become believers those who would make up his church. Jesus was giving him the keys to leadership. Jesus was saying there are going to be situations where you will need divine wisdom to know. Know therefore whatever you decide, it will be decided thus in heaven. He was giving Peter governing authority. And part of apostolic oversight is the power of government. Misused a lot. So it's useful to remember that the disciples had never heard of this thing called church before. It had been a mystery, something which was hidden in the Old Testament, never mentioned, so that they had no idea what it would entail. 
but Jesus equips them and gives them governmental authority. He knew that by the time Peter was going to need to do this, he would have denied his Lord, been reinstated, filled with the Spirit, and bold in his speech and witness. But at this point, it was probably all Greek to Peter, if you see what I mean. So we see in the Acts of the Apostles how this worked out. Again in Acts 2.42, the Word of God, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. One and four go together, the Word and prayer is the spiritual side. Funnily enough, we did it today. The Word and prayer. And then two and three, fellowship and eating together. Again, we did it today. Didn't plan that, that's just the way it's gone. So that's how we see it actually working. It's so simple. Sharing your life. Fellowship, eating together, sharing. Comes the time, though, when they have a problem and the apostles, who must have been doing the waiting at tables, otherwise they wouldn't have had this, decide that their priorities must be the word and prayer. So they select someone just about able to wait on tables, full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen. So when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're just about ready to wait on tables. And the way up with God is down. So exactly what are the qualities required to, quali the qualities required to qualify to be elders, leaders and deacons? To be full of the Holy Spirit and ready to wait on tables. I just want to take a little break there for a minute. Mark, we're really getting down to the nitty gritty now. I'm just going to read you a prophecy that was sent to me in December, and it's from young Kate uh, over in Printon. And this is what the Lord said to her All the things you think I care about, I don't. All things are past, and this is a new day. Yes, not a new season, a new day. Uncharted territory. There's not a place that you, that you fit that will feel familiar to you. This is because it hasn't yet come. This next phase of my church is not spoken of, it's not written about, and is coming to pass by my direct revelation to my people. You will learn to trust your initial thoughts and be governed by your peace. I am your fellowship, because you was whinging about having no fellowship. I am your trainer. I will accomplish all I desire to do in you. I see your willing heart and understand the complexities that make you up. I created you. I also know the very things I'm doing deep within you, knitting you together again into my purposes. So deep there is no evidence that anything is happening. This coming year is going to be immense. I am birthing something in you that is so vast it will knock the socks off of those around you. I understand this. No one will be able to comprehend it because it has never been seen before. I didn't reveal my church in the Old Testament, but it's in my heart. I have not revealed this phase in written form, but have written it on the hearts of my people. With the ending of this year is the closing of a chapter. All things will be new. Yes, it will testify in your spirit and will not be out of line with my character. So much more is the importance of testing every spirit. So much more you need to test prophecy and stand in the truth. Come out to be separated to me, not to bondage and religion of man's making. I have amazing things I'm going to reveal to you. Just keep walking as you have been. Serve me in your heart. Trust me to accomplish this task above all. 
Above all, believe in me and my abilities. Dream bigger, ask bigger, expect more. Many are waiting for the gate to open. Understand this. Open the eyes of your heart and hear. Jesus is this gateway into deeper revelations, deeper intimacy and deeper truth. You can come right now. You are already there, beloved. Look around, feel the grass, breathe the air. There is freshness and renewal for all who come. There is no mystery, no secret way in. No matter where you are, even in your disobedience, I am there to wash all these cares away. If you let me, I will guide you into all these things. But first you need to see yourself in Jesus, having all the favour and inheritance of a firstborn child, my favourite child. As I can earn your trust, I will open up wider paths as I learn to trust you. I will expand these paths into fields. You will be in such a broad place and so free. Choices, daily choices, still hold consequences. Choose wisely, but trust freely. If you step back into your spirit, the right choice will become apparent. I have not left you as orphans to make your own way in this fallen world. I have given you my spirit, so step back, take the time to listen. It's not rocket science, this is simplicity. She's been listening to Graham Cook, hasn't she? So, all encouraging stuff. So a different way of living, a different way of loving. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words defines agape as God's love towards us, expressing the deep and constant love and interest of a perfect being towards entirely unworthy objects, producing and fostering a reverential love in them towards the giver and a practical love towards those who are partakers of the same, and a desire to help others to seek the giver. The spirit of revelation has used it to express ideas previously unknown. Inquiry into its use, whether in Greek literature of the Septuagint, that's the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, throws but little light upon its distinctive meaning in the New Testament. From the Old Testament, where it was man sacrificing to God to get back into fellowship, now God was sacrificing himself for man, to bring man into endless fellowship with himself. So the word agape was born. was something they did not literally have a word for. Uh, interesting. God wants us 24-7. I've heard someone say recently that God said to him, I don't like timeshares. Weekends with me and the rest of the week with the world. We laugh, but it's so true. How many of us go to church on Sunday, high day of the week, and by Monday it's business as usual? Bob Mumford calls it dirty six. Go to church on Sunday and live as you like for the other six days. God wants full custody of us, and that's not unreasonable of him, for we were bought at a price. We belong to him. He purchased us by his blood out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious light. And last time we saw a radical change actually took place the moment we believed on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone who's seen the Chronicles of Narnia knows what happens when Aslan breathes on them. Have you seen the Chronicles of Narnia? When he breathes on them at the end there and he starts to come pink again. Ooh. Life. 
But the major change was that we changed kingdoms from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. A transfer took place. Ownership changed. From belonging to Satan, we're now the purchased possession of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. We were purchased by his blood and are partakers of the new covenant. We belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. The world is no longer our home. That makes us strangers and aliens, as Peter says, caught up in a global conflict between God on the one hand and Satan on the other. So assume the position. You are in my son. Live like it. You have the inheritance of the firstborn. You are in my unprecedented favour. The firstborn inheritance gives you rulership, a priestly function and a double portion. Maybe have a look at the rights of the firstborn sometime, it's quite interesting. That's mainly what it is. You get rulership, a priestly function and a double portion. So you've got all three of those things. There's a different way to live and a different way to love and God is going to teach us in this hour how to do both. But the choice really is ours and it starts with that Lordship prayer. And those of you who come on a Wednesday are beginning to learn about the difference between the loves. There are actually four types of love and they're all Greek words and you'll be familiar with them. There's storge which is basic nurture, mother love, mum and baby, mum and dad bonding with the child. Then there's phileo, which is friendship, husband, wife, brother, sister, loyalty to one another. Then there's eros, sexual love. And then agape, God's love. And for simplicity's sake, I'll narrow it down to two. Eros, which is our common love, the one we grew up with, the one we understand as love, the one the world understands as love. And agape, which is uncommon love, God's love. Only agape, love freed from self-serving, will enable us to become what Jesus talked about and intends us to be before he comes again. In order to understand the shift we need to make from our own common fallen love to the agape love of God, we need to contrast the two and then make some choices about where we're going to live. So common love, Eros, we're born with the distortion of the fall. We are intrinsically and internally twisted. Our love is intrinsically and internally twisted and bent towards ourselves. We are unable to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength because it takes God to love God. We cannot do it in our fallen nature and our fallen love is not acceptable to him because it always puts us first. It comes from our soul and it derives from our fallen nature, not the divine seed which is placed within us. So it's essential that we begin to live from our spirit man, not our soul. From the inside to the outside. Our ability to love and be loved then is shot through with the fall, even when we're born again. That is the first step we get the seed. Common love is self-centred. It always seeks what's best for itself. What about me? Anybody who's heard Joyce Mayer remember her saying, what about me? What about me? What about me? She was going around like a robot, wasn't she, one morning in the bedroom. And the Lord says, that's all he can hear from her is, what about me? What about me? It seeks to satisfy itself always. Not others, not even our nearest and dearest. 
it could be said, uh, it will break my heart if you left me. That is love centering on how it will affect me. It seeks to acquire and then to possess and finally to control the object of its love, without which it says it cannot survive. So ingrained is this pattern within us that even though a divine seed is placed in us at the point of conversion, in many of our lives this seed doesn't ever sprout and grow, it's never vivified. It brings forth little fruit, which is the character of Jesus. Instead, it lies dormant with common or eros love on the throne of our lives. We're at the center, never having relinquished control to the Holy Spirit. That's why we've got these Lordship prayers and this prayer here to align you with the Holy Spirit. You'll find if you're in my company very often, I'm all the while pushing submission to the Lord. Because we're bought at a price, we belong to him. So it's not a condemnation, it's a diagnosis of a spiritual disease which is killing us. It's invisible. It's like a virus that is resistant to all antibiotics. Unless we have a correct diagnosis, we're incapable of understanding what we need to do to get well. Unless we face the hard facts like an alcoholic, if we deny we drink, we'll never seek help to get free of the addiction. Self-centeredness, common love, is just as potent and damaging. It's silently killing us and those around us by its demands. Just think about your relationship with your nearest and dearest. What causes most upset? Face it, it's when you want what you want and the other person has other ideas. Joyce's daughter and son-in-law just having an argument over the wallpaper. They both want what they want, no one's going to give it. It's called the sinful nature. Paul's whole thrust in the New Testament is about putting off the old nature and putting on the new in Christ. It's about the shift from eros to agape, or agape, from the love which seeks the best for itself to the love which seeks the best for others. So we call it a multitude of things, the flesh, the carnal nature, the old Adam, the Adamic nature, the old sin nature, the fallen nature, but essentially it's our self-centeredness which results from the fall. Bold down, but it is. And it is at war with God. Paul says in Romans 8-7, that is because the mind of the flesh with its carnal thoughts and purposes is hostile towards God, here comes the word, for it does not submit itself to God's law and indeed it cannot notice the word submit the carnal mind the unrenewed mind the fleshly mind and nature will not bow the knee to God's reign and rule and lordship is the issue here we've all got it we all get to choose where we live this isn't a salvation issue this is a continuous issue. Jesus said, These are they who have continued with me through my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one on me. Luke 22, 28 and 29. From this we begin to see the kingdom emerging. Continuous are living kingdom lives. By the decisions we make, we govern whether we will be foot soldiers in the battle 
or can to be warriors. If Jesus isn't Lord, then you will not make it to warrior status. Anyone who is a warrior has decided long ago that Jesus is Lord, and therefore their complete confidence is in him in any situation. They have a kingdom focus and a life less ordinary as theirs. When we're born again and begin to attend church, instead of finding another love there, we find a refined form of common love which is even more powerful than that which we find in the world. Paul put it this way, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Jesus Christ. We begin to imbibe a toxic love. We are conformed to the image of church, which itself is moving in eros, not agape. This is not a condemnation, it's a diagnosis. Bear with me. We need an agape conversion experience. But first of all, we will need to make Jesus Lord of our lives as well as Saviour. So uncommon love, agape. We live in a world dominated by common love, but there's something else on offer, the agape conversion. And if you go for this today, you will discover that God's love will totally transform who you are. That you are embarked on a process, a series of steps, which will take you from where you are now to where the Lord wants you to be. That he likes you as you are, but he has designs on you. This process will take you from your past to your future, from sinfulness to righteousness, from not knowing who God is to being intimately related to him, from unbelief to full trust in who he is and what he says. So finally, before we finish, I promised you the five descriptions of priestly behaviour. You're probably ready for these now. The scriptures tell us that we are a kingdom and priests, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a dedicated nation, God's own purchased special people, that you may set forth the wonderful deeds and display the virtues and perfections of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Are you all sitting comfortably? As priests, we are commissioned to do the following five things. The first is absorb human failure. When I saw that, I thought, ouch. Second is to love others without reward. The third is to suffer vocationally, for the love of God constrains us. The next two are easier. Intercede on behalf of others and extend mercy. We'll never be able to do this unless we have a change in our way of loving, a shift from Eros to Agape, from common love to uncommon love, to love as we receive love from the Father, children of the kingdom, where love is the key. God is serious about what he's doing, he needs a supernatural community to be raised up who have the ability to communicate God's love. 
a different way of living, a different way of loving. Naturally. I've got a prayer here, to your surprise. I'll read it to you and then you can uh, tell me if you want a copy that you, we can all read it together. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, recognising that in me dwells no good thing. You've just shown me that even my love for my nearest, my husband, my wife, children, friends, parents, is shot through with sin. You built me to need love and grow mature within the love of families and relationships. But I see, Lord, that the love I grew up with was faulty. I see that the pictures and ideas and concepts and images of the way I grew to understand love are shot through with use and manipulation, exploitation, possession, control, demand, criticism and judgment. Lord, I don't want that anymore. I want your way of loving. So I say thank you for love. But my love is filled with sin. I use and manipulate, possess and control, condemn and measure, and use and judge. Lord, bring my love to death on the cross and raise up in me your way of loving. Thank you, Jesus. Set my loved ones free from me so that they are free to be to me all that you intend them to be. Amen. If anybody feels they want to um, pray that one, I get some copies. And what I feel I need to say now is that again, would you break into twos?